Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. Today, I am joined by Gay Hendricks. Gay Hendricks, PhD, has been a leader in the fields of relationship transformation and body-mind therapies for more than 45 years. After earning his PhD in counseling psychology from Stanford, Gay served as professor of counseling psychology at the University of Colorado for 21 years. He has written more than 40 books, four zero books, including bestsellers such as Five Wishes, The Big Leap, and Conscious Loving, both used as primary texts in universities and around the world. In 2003, Gay co-founded the Spiritual Cinema Circle, which distributes inspirational movies and conscious entertainment to subscribers in 70 plus countries. Gay has offered seminars worldwide and appeared on more than 500 radio and television shows, including Oprah, CNN, CNBC, 48 Hours, and others. In addition to his work with the Hendricks Institute, Gay is currently continuing his new mystery series that began with the book, The First Rule of Ten. Additionally, I'll be donating to and raising awareness for the charity or organization of my guest choice. This episode is Gay and Katie's own charity, the Foundation for Conscious Living. Any and all contributions make a difference. And in this conversation with Gay, we explore his the breadth of his body of work. We mostly focus on relationships, as my favorite book of his is Conscious Loving. And in relationships, Gay primarily focuses on telling the microscopic truth, which is usually saying a thought that you have, uh, a sensation that you're experiencing, a feeling you are experiencing without trying to blame the other person. It's taking 100% responsibility for your own experience of the moment. We also talk about some of Gay's other work, such as the zone of genius and what does that mean and the upper limits problem. Gay posits that many of us have trouble allowing ourselves to feel really good. And the upper limits problem is when we push on that boundary of how good we allow ourselves to feel. As we continue to grow and expand, there's new levels of whether it's in relationships with intimacy or success that is attainable in our careers. In any area of development and growth, we reach new levels of feeling good And when we encounter the upper limits problem, we might trip ourselves up to get us back to a more familiar place. And I love Gay's work around this. Gay is probably the most accomplished guest that I've had the privilege of interviewing. And I think you're going to get a lot out of this conversation. With all of that said, settle in, take a deep breath, and enjoy what Gay has for us today. Gay, welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning. Such a privilege to have you on the show. Well, thanks, Mike. Great to be with you and uh, hope to give you some meaning before we finish today. I have never been more confident of something in my whole life. (laughs) I'm sure that you will give me some meaning. And uh, the way that I start almost every single interview is by asking the following. And I've heard you talk a lot about your childhood and about your upbringing, but I don't think I've ever heard you in all your public appearances answer this specific question. What was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? <laughs> well, that's a great question. Well, let me describe two different dinner tables. I kind of went back and forth between my mother's house and my grandmother's house, which was next door. And so I kind of was always in one or the other for dinner. And uh, at my mother's house, it would be just me and my brother up until he went away for for college. He was eight years older than I am. And so during my young years, he was, you know, doing junior high school and high school. And then I got up to be maybe in the uh, fourth grade, I think, fifth grade, maybe. And he went away to college. After that, it was just me and my mother. And my mother was a busy professional woman. She was a writer, a, a newspaper columnist. And I always say, 
picture my mother with a camel cigarette, unfiltered camel cigarette in one hand and a cup of coffee in the other hand. And then she would set both of them down and type. So the soundtrack of my childhood was an old Underwood typewriter, clack, 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 clack. And uh, the smell of my mother's unfiltered cigarettes, which uh, always made me sneeze. So generally speaking, unless my brother and I got into some kind of an argument, dinner time at my mother's house was pretty easy going. And then after my brother left, we ate out a lot. And uh, then it was just me and my mom and she was tired of cooking. And so it made sense for us to eat out a lot. Uh, I lived in the South in Florida. So eating out for me meant going out for hamburgers or going out for fried chicken or something like that. Uh, it wasn't gourmet food by any means. Uh, but when I was at my grandmother's, it was very different over there because my grandmother and my grandfather had a long running difficulty between them and would frequently get into stuff around dinner time. And uh, so there was some always some tension around that over there. But on the positive side, my grandmother was a sensational cook. And so the food was great over at my grandparents, although the drama at dinner time was sometimes a little more intense. And uh, things were peaceful at my mother's place, but the, the food wasn't very great. So uh -huh. it was a trade-off. <laughs> How would you describe the way that you were as a child? Like, what were you drawn to? What were you curious about? Was psychology kind of an inevitability or something you came to eventually? Well, that's a great question because when I, I grew up in a town of 10,000 people where there was no such thing as a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a social worker or a psychotherapist, there were about maybe 10 or 12 churches. And it was, you know, mostly different kinds of Southern churches, Methodist, Baptist, et cetera. And uh, we went to the Methodist one. And so that was the only kind of thing that even resembled mental health. You know, you could talk to the minister about something. But so for some reason, though, when I was five years old, I I got a tricycle for my for my birthday and it was raining outside. And so my grandmother let me ride it around her big living room. And the first thing I did was I got my granddad to set up a cardboard box for me in the corner of my grandmother's living room. And I would commute on my tricycle to my office, which was in the box. And there I would help people with their problems. And I could never explain it very well. I told everybody that I didn't handle medical problems, that I handled other kinds of problems, but not medical problems, because they could go to a regular doctor for that. But I was very clear. I only handled these other kinds of problems. But my family since there was no context for this, they didn't understand. And so to this day, how would a five-year-old in Leesburg, Florida get that idea? You know, so I think there's some things we're kind of born with or drawn to. And so I was always drawn to two things, creative writing. I was always scribbling on things and writing little poems and writing little stories. And then I was also drawn to finding out about the world and I didn't know what to call it yet, but spirituality and, uh, and you know psychology, I didn't have words for those. But uh, another thing that was said about me a lot as a child, they used to call me gazer because I would frequently, I would be sitting there and I would be gazing out the window kind of into the distance and uh, nobody could find out what I was thinking about or anything. Uh, also, there's a lot of pictures of me as a baby where I'm sitting there and I've got my hands up like giving a blessing or receiving a blessing. So something's down in there that's made me always drawn to psychology things and spiritual things. And, you know, like my brother's completely different. He's a fixer and uh, he worked as an IBM engineer and then he built his own aircraft and, uh, you know, he can fix anything. And he's a genius at mechanical kinds of things. Whereas I'm completely hopeless with any kind of wrench or screwdriver or anything like that. And so we're completely different. He's never been into a monastery and he goes every year to Scotland to drink Scotch whiskey at different, what I guess you'd call monasteries there. <laughs> <laughs> Distilleries, I think they call them, not monasteries. <laughs> but, you know, I've been all over Tibet and Nepal and China and places like that, staying at different Zen monasteries and things. So I don't know if you, you believe this or not, but I think we're all born with some kind of a seed of something that needs to be expressed and if it gets expressed, we have a satisfying life. And if we don't, 
you know, it's like that saying in the Gospel of Thomas, where it says, if you bring forth what is within you, what is within you will save you. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, before we get into your work, uh, this, is, this is not something that has been explicitly named in the conversation, but you grew up without your father being present. And I would say, based on my research of you and in reading some of your books and listening to you on other podcasts, when you were young, it didn't seem like you felt like you deserved to love your life. That, that mm -hmm. probably seemed very outlandish. And I'm wondering if there were early, maybe in your teen years or 20s, were there some moments that woke you up to, you know, I am worthy of having a life that I love or... Yeah, I guess what I'm asking is what were what were some moments in your life that woke you up to like this is the path that I want to be on? This is the potential that I have in me. Like what woke you up to that? I can think of several formative moments. One was when I was about seven or eight years old. I was playing out in the side yard, and I don't know what what brought this about, but I I, I remember my brother had gone away to college and I was there kind of all by myself. And I had just come back. My mother and my grandmother took me to vacation Bible school at the Methodist church, uh, which was every day from about nine to 1130 or 12. And it was great for my mom and my grand grandma because, you know, it was free babysitting and the church was only a half mile down the road. But anyway, I had just come back from this vacation Bible school where we'd been told lots of stories about Jesus and uh, particularly about Jesus being the son of God. And I was sitting there and I was thinking about all that. And I, I had this thought that was, hey, wait a minute. Aren't we all the sons of God? Aren't we all the same? I mean, if one person can be, why not everybody? And so that was my first thought that I can remember about anything to do with formal religion. You know, and I, I was a pain in the butt, really, to my Sunday school teacher, because I was always asking these questions that they were having a hard time answering, you know, like, aren't there any other really great teachers? Like what's the story on Buddha? And, uh, you know, what's the story on Mohammed? Uh, were they the same? They just spoke different languages. No, no. <laughs> you know, and, uh, <laughs> That was the wrong kind of question to ask. Uh, but I, I think I always had the kind of expanded view of spirituality versus religion. And then, Oh, the other formative factor uh, is that I was a medical problem as a kid. I was born with something upside down in my thyroid and pituitary where it didn't produce any stuff. And so it regulates the heat in your body. And so everything I ate basically turned to fat. And I was the only fat person in a family of skinny people. And so I was eating the same food. And so I was taken around to different medical authorities and specialists and given shots and put on pills and oh man <laughs> for a long time and but it never really i i got into exercise really big in high school and played football and everything and at the time i kept my weight down that way but as soon as i went to, went away to college it all came back so by the time i was 24 years old i weighed more than 300 pounds by contrast, for the last 50 years or so, I've weighed about 180, 185 pounds. I'm about six feet tall. So if you looked at me today, you'd say, hey, there goes a tall, athletic looking old guy. And but I looked anything like a tall, athletic guy when I was 22 years old. So what happened was very fortuitous. I always tell my students that the universe is very happy to teach you by tickling with you with a feather if you're paying attention. But if you don't pay attention, it'll bop you over the head with a uh, a mallet if it needs to, to get the lesson. And so that's the kind of lesson I guess I needed. Uh, I went out for a walk one day when I was 24 years old. I was in this really toxic relationship and I'd had a big argument with her. And I went out for a walk to kind of clear my head. Also, I was a heavy smoker, smoked two or three packs of Marlboros a day. Fortunately, I wasn't a drinker. I've never been attracted to alcohol, but I, you know, I, ate all this crappy food and I was in this terrible relationship and didn't like my job very much. And I went out for a walk and the snow in New Hampshire sometimes covers patches on the road where there's ice on the road. And I stepped on what I thought was some snow 
and I hit an ice patch and I my feet shot out from under me and I went whoop down on my back and I banged my head, but I didn't knock myself out, but it knocked me out of my my usual way of thinking about myself for about two minutes. And I had the most amazing experience that changed my life. It was like I could see down through all of the levels of myself that I'd never known about before. I could feel inside. I had a level of old anger about growing up without a dad. And I had a, a lot of sadness about that and other things too. And seeing my mother have difficult times and Oof, it was, and I just lost my grandmother, who was kind of my main love connection in my early childhood. So I realized I had all these things I was angry and sad about, but I never paid any attention to them. It's like I never went down beneath the surface. And I also realized I had a lot of things down inside I was scared about. So it was like I took this elevator ride down past anger, down past sadness, down past fear. But then here's the real magic. As I let myself feel all those things, I realized that if I let myself feel and accept them all, I felt this other thing, which I called pure consciousness. It was just the radiance of consciousness, pure being with nothing on it, you know, without any yeah. thoughts or any kind of programming on it. So I realized, oh my goodness, that's my true home. And that's our true home, that the way to get there is by bringing our awareness down through everything that's kind of below our necks. And instead of, you know, usually the way I was taught, it was more spirituality was more from the neck up, you know, and it didn't have anything to do with the body. You were trying to get away from your body. And so I realized that that was completely faulty that the way to own our spirituality, our spiritual nature, was to accept ourselves exactly as we are. And that gives us this open space that's that same thing I'm calling pure consciousness. So that was a huge wake-up moment for me. And then here's the amazing thing that happened. After a couple of minutes of feeling this kind of ecstasy about discovering this new place in myself, then I started to realize, oh, I still, I'm freezing. I'm lying on the, the ground. I'm shivering. Oh, I want a cigarette. Oh, I got to walk back home now. Uh, you know, and oh, then I got to go back into the same relationship. So I had this bunch of, oh, kind of thing coming out of that ecstatic place. But then here's the thing I did, which I think saved my life probably, actually. I made a commitment. I could feel myself coming out of it and losing my awareness of that pure consciousness. And so I made this commitment. I said, I'm going to do whatever it takes in life in order to feel that in every moment of my life, in every space in my being. I want to feel that pure consciousness. Again, I want to feel it all the time. And so I made that commitment. And I'll tell you, if you make a sincere, heartfelt commitment for something, look out because it's already on its way to you. And when I got I got back to my house and everything changed from that moment, Mike. I I like I didn't even want the same food. Mm -hmm. I started eating only food that fed that pure consciousness in me. And I changed my diet basically overnight from cheeseburgers, french fries, hot dogs, vanilla shakes. That was, you know, what I ate on a regular basis. And so all of a sudden, I started picking things like I remember blueberries, I remember finding some blueberries and just really selectively eating one, two, three blueberries, just tasting them. And so I started changing all my habits. And then a piece of magic happened a couple of days later. A friend of mine called and said, hey, I'm going up the road near your house to hear one of my old Harvard professors. He was my favorite Harvard professor, and he's gone to India, and he's had some kind of transformation, and I want to hear what he has to say. And he's giving a talk at his father's estate, which was about 30 miles from me in Webster Lake, New Hampshire. 
And so I went with Neil to see his psychology professor named Richard Alpert. But I found when we got there is he had changed his name to Baba Ramdas and he was Ramdas and he had these robes on and this blissful smile on his face. And he had all these disciples around him that were all these beautiful young people dressed in yoga outfits and saris, Indian saris and, you know, loose fitting pants. And they all had long hair and kind of dreamy looks. And this one young woman came up to me you know, I've got my Marlboros in my pocket. And she came up to me and with a bowl of fruit and said, here, would you like some fruit? You know, it was just the weirdest thing I'd ever seen in my life. You see, I, I was never, never did yoga or learned about meditation or I took one psychology class in, in college and hated it. Basically, it was all about rats and stuff like that. And whew. That was a big moment for me meeting Ramdas because he proceeded to speak for about three hours without any notes. That was amazing to me. Where's he getting this information? He would just stop occasionally and look at the picture of his guru. He had this big eight by 10 glossy picture of his guru and he'd look at the guy and then he'd go, ah, and then he'd go back to talking again. But he just pulled the stuff out of nowhere, which was kind of like the most brilliant stuff I'd ever heard in my life about real life and what goes on inside real people, you know, and it was so different from anything I'd ever heard before. And he talked about his own life and how he'd been bisexual and all sorts of stuff that you wouldn't typically hear coming out of a spiritual teacher's mouth, you know, and, but I found it riveting. And I went up to him afterwards and I said, could you just give me some advice? I, I just had this big spiritual experience, but I don't know where to go from here. And he said, yeah, he said, well, in India, if people were going to work on themselves like you want to work on themselves, they do some yoga, they do some breathing practices, they'd maybe do some chanting, they do some breath work, they do some meditation. And I remember saying, okay, I'm soul. Where would I find out about that? And he made this little movement with his hand. He kind of like flicked my way. My question said, oh, don't worry. Something will come to you. Okay. You know, and I was, well, well then I went to the grocery store and I was checking out at the, at the supermarket checkout stand. And I looked to my left and there was a little book called Yoga, Youth and Reincarnation by Jess Stern. And I remember it was 95 cents, which I'll tell you how long ago. This is the year of 1969, I believe. So about 50 years, 50 some years ago. So to make a, a, an even longer story short, I started doing all those things. And just out of the book, it was all in there. There was probably 20 different breathing exercises and a whole section of yoga postures and then a whole section on meditation. And I just started doing those right out of the book about three o'clock one afternoon. By midnight, I got to the meditation chapter and I started doing the simple meditations, which was the first one was to simply close your eyes and use the syllable Ram, 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 and just think that over and over again until your mind quieted. And I did that. And after about two minutes, there I was in that pure consciousness place again. And I was absolutely stunned when I realized that how simple and easy it was to get into that state of transcendence. You don't have to go around bashing your head on the ground. And so I just started doing more and more of those kinds of things. And that took me many, many years to, before I really got into another big close relationship. I think I went on my own for about six or seven years, just kind of working on myself, trying to figure out who I was and what I wanted in life. I didn't have that wake up moment until I was 24. And it took me to 34 years of age to get to a place where I felt like I was ready to have a really big relationship. And that's when I manifested the great miracle of my life, my relationship with my wife. Kathleen Hendricks, Dr. Kathleen Hendricks, also known as Katie. Awesome. So there's a long-winded story for you about how this all got started for me. <laughs> um, I'm happy to tell you more about that, but just uh, that's basically the skeleton of what happened. Yeah, 
Uh, well, thank you for going all the way there with me. I'll, I'll give you a, a little bit of a break from talking there. I am finding myself, I just want to offer a, a reflection and then we'll see where it goes from there. You strike me as someone who, like you named that the universe could tickle you with a feather as a wake up call or it can hit you over the head with a sledgehammer. And you strike me as someone who, when you were tickled with the feather, you were, you listened and you answered those calls. I'm wondering if there were any times, like you said, that happened when you were 24 years old, but you didn't end up meeting and then eventually marrying Katie until you were 10 years older, 34 years old. Were there some other calls or ticklings from the universe that you can look back on with hindsight that maybe you ignored or some moments that some additional moments that were helpful in your evolution in being open to having a relationship like the one that you have now? Yeah, well, what happened for me in the area of relationships, I fell in love with my high school sweetheart that I met on the first day of school, uh, senior year, and we were totally bonded uh, for that year and then into the first year of college. And finally, she dumped me. She kept tickling me with the feather saying, you know, like, I'd like to get closer to you, Gay, but you never share anything about yourself. You're like, nothing goes on inside you. Tell me how you feel about something, you know? And the funny thing was, Mike, I just could not figure out what she was talking about. <laughs> you know, I was, I guess I was so far down in there that it just didn't compute for me. And so I was very, deg various degrees of resistant to her you know, really wanting to go deeper with me. And so I was too frozen on the surface. And I think that was one of the first, like she tickled me with the feather for practically a whole year. And then the sledgehammer hit, uh -huh. you know? And I remember saying to her, whoa, gosh, this is sudden, isn't it? How come, you know? And she said, no, this is not sudden. You know, we've been talking about this for a year. And that took me, oh man, I so did not want to hear that. I was so into making it her fault. And I think I did for a long time. I resisted, you know, and then I remember even when I was in graduate school, uh, a woman I was dating said something very similar to me. By then I was a lot more evolved than I was back then in high school, but I still was very cut off. And I remember her saying, she came to my room where I, I was living and she looked around and she said, hey, there's nothing on the walls here. You don't have any art or poster or anything like that. And I realized I'd never even noticed that. Mm. You know, that was the box that I lived in. I didn't care about it. You know, that it was just a place I came to sleep every night. It didn't occur to me to fix the place up. And, you know, now I'm amused by it because my wife, Katie, is the most amazing aesthetic person. And she keeps our house full of fresh flowers. And our house is like a, you know, the Museum of Modern Art kind of thing. And beautiful place to visit. I hope you'll come someday. Mm. I know New Yorkers don't usually like to visit us out here on the West Coast, yeah, but one I of these days. I love the West Coast and I've never oh, been to you? Ojai, so I would love to. Okay, good. Well, you'll have a chance to sit in our magical backyard with us. We've got a world-class backyard. But anyway, I think that that was a sledgehammer blow. And also right around that same time, my grandmother died. And I think I went into a downward spiral I don't know if you've ever been this way with a beloved family member, but there was, you know, it was like I had never considered that she was going to die someday, you know? I mean, it's crazy now that I look back at it because she was 80 years old, you know? But there was something, she was just so, you know, she, when I was born, my mother was not in a good place because my father had just died while she was pregnant with me. And so she was on a downward spiral. Unfortunately, my grandmother lived next door and, and took me over and took me in and 
really gave me that kind of nurturing I needed for the first couple of years of my life. And I think because of that deep connection with her, it hit me like a another sledgehammer when she had a stroke. And suddenly the next day I'm at her bedside with my mother and my aunt trying to decide whether to turn off the machine. You know, <laughs> that was one of the worst moments of my life. And I just had to sit there and realize, oh, the person I knew is no longer there. That was a rare experience I had, but that person is now departed. And that was such a difficult thing for me. I think I went into a downward spiral at that point. And that downward spiral led me to get involved with that toxic relationship that I was still in on the day I slipped in the ice. Because I think the drama of the pain of that relationship helped kind of get me out of the depression I felt after my grandmother died. I think I went into a pretty deep depression there. And then I got into this relationship where there was so much toxicity and anger and blame. I think it kind of woke me up in a way and took me years to get out of it. But I think in a way it saved my life because it pulled me out of the mud. Mm. Yeah. Well, one of the many things that I love about your work, I mean, even today, when you mention embodiment to some people, it's like, you know, you're like, what, what does that even mean? It's like what you were describing about yourself when uh, your significant other at the time was like, hello, knocking on the door, like what's going on in there? And a lot of us are living from the neck up. And what I love about your work is that you, know, you wrote Conscious Loving in like the early 1990s. And you were talking about feeling your feelings to completion and the wisdom of the body. And I'm just wondering, like, where did that come from? I mean, even today, it's still looked at as this kind of esoteric, out there concept. Did you have teachers? Did, was this just something you kind of came to on your own? All of the above? Oh, I had, I had definitely teachers and people I worked with. Like, for example, I was very blessed when I got my master's degree at the University of New Hampshire. And by then I'd fallen in love with counseling and helping people. And I didn't realize there was a whole field, you know, devoted to that. Because like I said, I was an English major in college. I wanted to write the great American novel. I didn't ever perceive myself as writing a self-help book or anything <laughs> like that. In fact, there weren't any self-help books at the time. So I had the good fortune of going to Stanford to get my doctorate and the program was great, but it was the fact that it was right there in kind of the hotbed of San Francisco, Menlo Park, you know, where LSD had been first given to people and uh, meditation teachers galore and gestalt therapists and body workers, rolfers. There was just like a cafeteria supply of great evolved ways to grow. And I had an amazing breathing experience right away where I was getting some body work one day. I, in fact, I was getting rolfed when I first came to California, a deep massage, you know, designed to kind of clear away old patterns in your body. And he was working on my legs and to deal with the pain that he was releasing from my legs, I had to keep breathing deeper and deeper and deeper. And I went into this spontaneous hyperventilation state that now is used by many breath workers like rebirthers and Stan Groff has developed a thing, but it's the idea of hyperventilating and then letting the energy move through you and come to completion rather than holding on. And so I just kept breathing and more and more and I went out into that pure consciousness space, but I could also feel tremendous vibration going on in my body. My cells seemed like they were vibrating because of all the extra air I'd pumped through. And I began to realize that one of the reasons human beings keep ourselves stuck is that we don't go all the way with things. Like if, like I was told as a little boy, I would start to cry and my older brother would say, shh, shh, stop that, you know? And so same thing with fear, you know, I'm scared. I would start to say as a kid and, you know, somebody would say, don't feel that basically. And so I was in the habit of just cutting off a lot of things in myself to learn how to breathe through my anger and breathe through my sadness and 
let tears come and breathe through my fear. That was a huge thing. I realized that there's no bad stuff in us. It's just stuff that we haven't explored yet. And I think I had developed a, a belief like a lot of people have that there was some fundamental flaw I had that was keeping me from getting the kind of love that I wanted in life, that I was had some kind of uncorrectable flaw. Now I realize there is no such thing. And I credit my great teacher and Rolfer, Jack Downing, MD. Uh, he was a psychiatrist, but he spent most of his time doing body therapy. The other thing he did was he was a big advocate of dance therapy and movement therapy. And he had belonged to a dance therapy group a lot. And he suggested to me that I do some dancing and movement with the issues I was talking to him about, you know, old issues of abandonment and things like that. And he said, just turn on some loud music and move your body to them. And I said, I said, well, I, I don't know. I don't dance, you know? And he said, this is really great. He said, oh no, I'm not suggesting you dance. Just put on some music and move your body to the beat of the day. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay, I can do that. I can't dance, but <laughs> well, I became such an avid, avid dancer that I joined a dance therapy group, which led ultimately to my meeting my wife because she was one of the world's preeminent dance therapists. And so I ended up marrying, you know, the, the perfect woman who is so into bodies and dance and that kind of thing that it's been a great 42 years now exploring all that with her. Mm, that's beautiful. I don't think I had ever heard the exact origins of yours and Katie's story like that. So thank you for sharing. I'd be curious to hear, I mean, you highlight so many examples in Conscious Loving, but I'd be curious to hear maybe one that comes to mind right now of an example of, or if I backtrack, actually, what are some typical examples of unconscious programming that folks show up with in a relationship and ways that we maybe fall into the, the victim or the villain, et cetera? And uh, what's an example of a way that you and Katie held space for a, a couple in a session where that energy that was stuck was was brought to life? And like, what what was possible after that? Yes, great question. Well, here's an extreme example, but it has all the elements in it. Most people create relationship problems by not telling the truth about something that's important. It could be a feeling like, I felt hurt when you said dot, dot, dot to me, or I'm scared about what we're doing in our lives, or I'm angry at such and such. But many of us don't share things like that. And then three things happen in a row. Withhold, withdraw, and project. In other words, the moment I withhold a feeling that I have for you. Let's say I'm mad at you about something and I'm swallowing it. That's the withhold. And the act of doing that pulls us back from the relationship, back from the possibility of intimacy. Then we project on the other person. We pull back. We're hiding something ourselves. And then to justify that, we start projecting onto the other person. Oh, Mike's not a safe person for me to tell my feelings to. Or, oh, Mike has more problems than I do. Or whatever it is, you know, the projection. So withhold, withdraw, and project. We started seeing that in our own lives. Before Katie and I started teaching others, we worked on all these things ourselves. You know, we, we say we're our own best customers. And so we started noticing that habit of withholding things. And we started, we made a commitment to reveal rather than conceal. So that was one of our big commitments. A second thing, most arguments between couples are a race to occupy the victim position. One person stakes out the victim position, say, you're doing it, you're making me miserable. The other person usually doesn't happily agree with that assessment. They don't usually say, you know, you're right, I am ruining your life. What they usually say is, wait a minute, who are you to talk? You're ruining my life. You're the one, I'm the victim here. And sadly enough, you even see grown up 75 year old politicians 
even billionaires whining about being the victim all the time and how everybody's always persecuting them. And so interestingly enough, once you start pointing the finger of blame, you enter this thing we call the drama triangle, where I blame you, you blame me, it goes back and forth like that until somebody makes what we around here call a rescue or a hero move, which is somebody says, oh, let's forget about it. Let's go have lunch and put all this to the side or let's go out for ice cream and forget this problem. You know, we they <laughs> solve the problem by just papering over it. And we don't do that. What we do is suggest that people take full responsibility and give full responsibility to the other person. Because if you have two people taking 100% responsibility, that's where real magic is occurring. Because two people are 200%. You know, here's 100%, here's 100%. It's not accurate to say when people get together, they make 100%, 50% of one and the other, just doesn't work that way. And so we started making commitments to each other and that we could be accountable to, like a commitment to take responsibility as an alternative to blaming the other person. So instead of saying, why are you doing this to me? It became, hmm, why would I be setting it up like this right now? Why would I be creating this kind of conflict that looks like it's her fault? So taking full responsibility, and we begin to work on that. That's a difficult thing. That takes you into all sorts of new areas because it's there's tremendous energy. Because the moment you step out of victim, you actually line yourself up directly with the universe. You're saying, oh, I claim responsibility for my being here in this way, in this moment. That's magic. Now back to this couple. They came in. She was about 40 pounds overweight. He was considering having spinal fusion surgery because of a back problem he'd had for three years. Take note of that three years because it has a relationship to what actually happened. So for three years, he'd been trying to get his back pain fixed and he'd had more than a hundred chiropractic adjustments and he'd had some large number, I think it was like 175 massages over the past three years and done some various things. And now he was considering getting his spine fused. Okay. So that was one aspect of it. So here was our treatment of it. It really took about 10 seconds. One of the things we asked him was, what happened three years ago? What did you start doing three years ago that created pain in your life or that you felt guilty about so that you would prefer back pain to having to face the pain of whatever that thing was? Well, it so happened that he had been started an affair with his secretary three years before. And so every week, I think it was on Tuesdays, they would get together and take a long lunch somewhere. And so he'd been carrying that around. And interestingly enough, his wife had felt there was something off. And she kept saying to him, are you okay? You know, you don't seem like you're here all the time. And he would stonewall or he would say, oh, no, you're just dreaming all that up. Well, during that period of time, she got some bad eating habits and put on quite a bit of weight. And so the magic, though, is once he copped to it and they went through the big flurry of anger and sadness and all that over a few weeks period, they decided to make a new commitment to creating a new kind of relationship. And it was really amazing where they, they got to because within a month, she lost about 30 pounds and she didn't even go on a diet. It was like she'd been holding on to that, you know, that kind of crazy making thing where you ask somebody, are you okay? You know, something feels like it's off here. And the person says, no, no, I'm fine. Thank you. And so that had, I don't know exactly the mechanism, but I guess she'd overeaten to try to make some of that pain go away. But the interesting th thing was how quickly it changed once they kind of outed the truth in the situation. So that would be an extreme example of the kind of thing 
that gets people stuck in patterns. We've actually had couples come in for the first time, often from, uh, like I, I'm thinking of a couple that came in from the Midwest and they had been married for 30 years and they'd basically been having the same argument for 30 years. And it never got resolved because they always, you know, instead of actually resolving it, they would buy a new refrigerator or go on a vacation or have another baby or whatever the thing was. They were distracting themselves from getting underneath and actually looking at the fundamental difficult pattern. Once people are willing, it usually doesn't take long, but it's the willingness factor. Because a lot of times, especially in relationship counseling, two people come in, but only one of them really wants to be there. The other one is being dragged by a leash in the door. Mm. So two concepts that you speak very eloquently to that we have touched on, but I would love to hear you explicitly bring into the conversation, especially in with regards to relationships, are telling the microscopic truth and speaking unarguably. So could you just lay out what each of those things means and then an example of what that would look like in a relationship and maybe specifically around you you just shared two wonderful examples but i'm thinking in an everyday argument like i don't know someone left the dishes in the dishwasher and then i get angry mm -hmm. like what would telling the microscopic truth look like there because that's everyone can relate to that okay let's say person's leaving their socks on the floor or mm -hmm. not putting the dishes away or whatever the thing is very everyday kind of thing. In fact, more couples, the four things couples fight about are sex, money, chores, and kids. And of those, more fights happen about money than about sex. And more happen about, in my experience, more about chores than about either one of those things. And kids are also a big factor in there. But take a simple one like chores. The um, one person might, might say, What's wrong with you? You've left your socks on the floor here three days in a row. What the hell kind of you know, person are you anyway? So their attack is on the being of the person. Okay, well, human beings don't like to be attacked on the being level. And so that always kicks back with a response like, well, you don't ever sweep the floor. What does it matter if I throw my socks on it? You know, and... Uh, so there's some kind of retort, but it's both of them running for the victim position. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now telling the microscopic truth might start with, I'm really angry at you. Okay. That's not a bad start getting down from what's wrong with you. That's an attack on the being level. Or my mother's favorite was whatever possessed you to do dot, 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 you know, like it was some evil entity that entered my body, possessed me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so uh, what you then have to do is go down a level underneath the anger. And the two other big feelings that are underneath anger is sadness and fear. And so whenever you're angry, drop down one level further and ask yourself, what am I hurt about? What am I sad about? And state that because that's more microscopic even than anger because it's further down in your body. Most people experience their anger up in their shoulders, back of their neck, shoulder blades tighten up that area, jaws tighten, face turns red. So it's often in the upper part of their body. Whereas sadness is generally people when they point to their sadness, point to their chest or their throat, that area. Um, and people, when they're scared, they point to their bellies where they feel butterfly sensations and a tight band around their bellies. So if you can go down and name the deepest one microscopically, I'm scared. I'm afraid I'm going to lose you. I'm scared. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to respond to how I'm feeling right now. So those kind of microscopic statements, we call them 10 second miracles because they never take longer than 10 seconds to say, and they always produce a useful result. 
there's such a tenderness of vulnerability and an aliveness in just being able to state where you're at. I am, I have never ceased to be amazed at how powerful it is to just name. I'm scared. I'm scared. I'm, yeah. I'm scared. I'm in fear. What are some other ways that you can speak unarguably? I know that you talk a lot about uh, body sensation. That's even more microscopic. If you underneath, let's say your sadness, you say, oh my gosh, my throat is so tight right now. Or I feel such a constriction around my heart. So when you can get down into what the sensations of the body are actually telling you, that is really useful because nobody can argue about that. Yeah. If you say my throat is really tight right now, or I feel really sad, the other person doesn't ever say, no, you don't, or quit that or anything like that. They're usually kind of, when a person communicates authentically like that, it creates possibility in the other person to do that also. One person has to be bold enough to do it, and then it catches on. Or if the other person resists it, then that becomes very clear, too, that it makes the pattern even more clear to both people is when one of them can break through to that authentic level and communicate about something with zero blame. If you've got 1% blame on it, it's the same as 99% blame. <laughs> it's important just to communicate the essence of the thing itself. My belly is tight right now. I'm confused. I don't know what to do. I can't think of what to say. Things like that make a huge difference in the intimacy, intimacy level of the relationship. We we are moving in this direction anyway. I would love to talk about, we've done a lot of the, let's say, clearing that needs to be done or healing work that when we become available to life, we can start having these amazing discussions around the genius zone. And one of the things that gets in the way or interferes in some way with the genius zone is the upper limits problem. So I would love to hear you speak to each of those. Yes. Well, in my work back in the 80s, particularly, I realized I was working a lot with really gifted, talented business executives, a lot of high tech executives and brilliant thinkers. But in the emotional zone, they were clueless a good bit of the time or outright resistant to the point of being obnoxious. You know, and a lot of them were getting the same feedback from their partners that they needed to get down below their neck and down into what was real in themselves. And so I started working with, with these gifted people and I realized that they would frequently have a breakthrough at work and then they'd go home that night and create some kind of drama at home or a big argument or something like that. They come in and they say, hey, I got $150,000 raise today. And then the partner would come in, well, well, is that going to make you less of a jerk than you are? <laughs> you know? And so it would immediately devolve into some kind of a conflict. And I, I started calling that the upper limit problem. And I'd noticed it earlier in my life, but I didn't have a name for it. When I was losing all that weight, I, I'd lost the first 30 or 35 pounds. And I went out and I got entranced by an ice cream Sunday that I saw through the window of an ice cream store. And I went in and I ate the whole thing. And I gave myself the worst stomach ache I'd ever gotten in my life. And I realized I'd had 30 days of feeling so great while I was losing that 30 pounds. And I got to a place where I, I guess I just didn't know how to feel that good. So, you know. There I, I put in the ice cream sundae. But I noticed that often I started calling it the upper limit problem later when I started working with other people. And I realized that what we were really blocking was the full emergence of our creative potential. I started calling that your genius. The genius zone is when you're doing things that you love to do and are also things that make other people's lives better at the same time, that contribute to other people. Human beings are at their happiest when they're doing what they love to do, and they're doing something that empowers or uplifts other people. 
I've never seen it otherwise. And so what we have to get busy doing in our daily lives is transcending those upper limit problems, seeing them for what they are and transcending them so that we can spend more and more of our time in our genius zone. Mm. I started out spending about 10% of my time in my genius zone back in the 80s, but I started increasing it. So by the end of the century, I was spending basically all my time doing what I most love to do and what makes my biggest contribution. And then, you know, sometimes I have to get around from place to place or sleep and exercise and things like that. But for the last 20, 25 years, during my waking hours, I'm doing some version of what you and I are doing right now. I'm writing books or being on a TV show or whatever I'm doing, teaching seminars. But it's all about that process of helping people find the thing they love to do and then learn how to express that in a way that really supports other people. What are some wonder questions that you would invite folks to ask themselves to tap into their genius zone? The biggest, most important one is, hmm, what do I most love to do that makes the biggest contribution to other people? Hmm, hmm. Another one is, hmm, what do I do where it creates the biggest amount of positive results per time spent. And you might spend 10 minutes doing something in your sweet spot of your genius zone, but it has powerful effects. You know, I once started a business 10 seconds after meditation. I had this 10 second idea that I later over the next three years turned into a business that I later sold for a little over $10 million. And so 10 seconds to 10 million, there was a lot of work that went on in between, but the germ of the idea started as just this one little moment of saying, oh yeah, I see how we could do that. And live in the sweet spot of that first question though, what do I most love to do? You can never go wrong by asking that more and more. Well, Gay, just a couple more questions for you and then off to lunch with your lovely wife, Katie. Uh, what is something that folks would be surprised to learn about you? You're an open book, but is there anything that people would be surprised to learn about you? They'd probably be surprised to know that I'm quite an avid golfer. Mm -hmm. um, I was not a natural athlete growing up or anything like that. I flailed at playing high school football, but I wasn't very gifted at it. But uh, in my 40s, another psychologist and I started playing a little golf together kind of as a walking meditation. And I kind of got into it. And I'm still into it as a walking meditation. But now I uh, actually, uh, like this morning, for example, I played one of my golf buddies and we play for $10 a hole. And I ended up winning a crisp new $100 bill from him. So uh, I will put part of the Hendrix fortune on the line playing golf. So you might be surprised to see me out on the golf course. Uh huh. Well, as someone who's living in his genius, almost a hundred percent of the time, this might be a, a tough one to answer, but I'm, I'm finding myself curious. Where do you feel most unfinished in your life? Mm, mm. Well, I'm unfinished in a couple of places. One is my daughter who's in her fifties has a birthday coming up. And I was thinking about what do I want to gift to her for her birthday? And that led me into a whole bunch of things that I, as I approach the end of my life, I'm 77 now, and you know I'm feeling good and everything, but at 77, you uh, don't want to buy any green bananas. And so <laughs> I, uh, I have some things I need to talk to her about that I'm incomplete with that I've recently realized. So that would be one area. Well, I'm always working on like I, I work out three days a week at the gym with a trainer and I'm always trying to feel more of my body and celebrate more of this mortal existence we have as well as our spiritual existence. And so I'm always trying to figure out ways of doing more positive energy things with my body. Like I played golf for three hours this morning and then tonight Katie and I are going to dance for two hours at ecstatic dance. And uh, so we're always using our bodies. We both ride bikes too. We both have these 
e-bikes. And so we, uh, which are great for people with kind of rickety knees. You can pedal them when you want to pedal them and then you can hit the button and power yourself up a hill. So riding an e-bike has really changed my life. Awesome. Uh, well, before I ask my very final question, you, the Foundation for Conscious Living is the organization that you wanted to raise awareness for. And so I'd love to hear you speak to that and where people could connect with you online or otherwise, including the books that we've named. One good place is just to go to Hendrix.com, H-E-N-D-R-I-C-K-S.com, because that'll show you where all our other stuff is, like our e-courses and our books and things like that. The Foundation for Conscious Living is our nonprofit foundation where people contribute and we contribute to it to create funds for people who are doing interesting things in the world that accomplish genius zone things. They're doing something they love to do in a way that uplifts and empowers and enlightens other people. And so, for example, we've supported a couple of movies. We've supported a whole bunch of scientific studies. We were supporting the making of a, a particular record album and that has a theme, a lot of themes to it that we want to see in the world. So we do a lot of supporting, giving grants and things like that. It's very satisfying. Katie and I have been really blessed financially. And long ago, we, we made our fortune and really haven't had to work for money for many years. So we can kind of do just only what we most love to do. And the best parts about all that is we get to give grants to cool people doing cool things through the Foundation for Conscious Living. Love it. Well, Gay, the podcast is called Mike's Search for Meaning, and I, I love asking all my guests, what does it mean to you, in your words, to live a meaningful life? It means that every day, with every breath I take, I'm expanding in my own ability to receive and give love, positive energy. I'm breathing and living in such a way that every day my love, creativity, and abundance increases as I inspire other people to do the same thing. So the meaning of my life is to celebrate life, abundance, creativity, deep spiritual connection, at the same time as inspiring people to do whatever their unique genius is out there in the world. And because I get to do that every day, I've got a job I would never, ever want to retire from. Mm. Well, Gay, thank you for joining my show and spending some time with me and my genius. It was a dream come true to have uh, someone of your caliber on my show. Uh, such a pleasure. And uh, I'll let you go and enjoy that lunch that your, that your nose has been sniffing. And uh, to all the listeners, whenever you are listening, I hope that you have a great rest of your day or evening and take good care. Cheers to living in your genius. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.